Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Perp Web 85, day one. This is going to be our journal club. Uh, and the uh, title today for our journal club is a, a, a article out of ASIO, How to Do It, a safe, the safe bedside protocol for dual lumen right, internal jugular cannulation for venovenous extrapolar membrane oxygenation in COVID-19 patients with severe acute respiratory distress syndrome, and it's out of Johns Hopkins with Cha and Kim being primary authors. Before I get started on the journal club, however, um, oh, and I need to start this up too, I'm sorry. Before I get started on journal club, let's get through our, uh, our, uh, uh, program, our uh, uh, housekeeping notes, if it's okay. Uh, contact us at, per, contact at perfusioneducation.com. Um, you've got our call-in number, which is 832-239-5358. If you would like to call and be live on the air, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we can have a discussion about any of these points that you're going to hear today in our, our lecture or our journal club, our review. The scroll bar that you see down below there, that has all of our social media and contact information as well as our call-in number. And if you would please click the like button, click the thumbs up button, forward it, share it, subscribe, use the notifications bell icon, whatever, wherever you're watching from, whatever that is that you do on that platform, please do it for us. It would really be appreciated. In addition to that, make comments. Your comments in the videos are very beneficial. The more words that are spoken about this, the more things that are written, the more engagement there is, helps us tremendously. Okay, let's get on to our MediWeb app. Our MediWeb app, you see it right there. Uh, that is one of the best apps that we have. Um, thank you so much, kind sir. Um, that is one of our best apps. Uh, actually, and it's got a great perfusion section. It's got perfusion quick calcs. It's got uh, an ECMO section, hemodynamic section. It's got an IV dose and rate calculator. We put a lot of effort into this app. We keep updating it. The updates, of course, are free for as long as we have the app. It's a $2.99 app, well worth that amount of money, worth much more than that. And eventually we're going to go up on that price because as it continues to gain in popularity and be utilized, um, it's going to, of course, become more expensive. Um, but it's, uh, we're very proud of the app. There's also a standalone IV rate dose rate calculator for critical care nurses. But this is very applicable, this app, for perfusionists, critical care nurses, critical care docs, pretty much anyone who uh, is going to be managing critically care, uh, critical care patients, whether it be in the uh, operating room or whether it be in the uh, ICU. Uh, PerfWeb Podcast, you can find us on your favorite streaming software and uh, look us up. Uh, we are uh, available uh, just by looking up PerfWeb on the, whether it be Spotify or Podbeam or whatever it may be, and you can listen to us in the car. Uh, let's see. And then are we doing the social media pop-ups today, David? Yes. 
Okay, so if you make comments on social media, and I'm not sure if it's only YouTube or not, somebody's gonna have to tell me. It's just YouTube. So if you make a comment on YouTube, it will automatically pop up, just like you see it doing right there, and, I, and that'll draw my attention to it, and I'll be able to respond to those kinds of comments or questions in real time. So hopefully that will be a benefit to you all. All right, so there's my opening remarks. Let me go ahead and get right into our article for today. And am I shared with you? Yep, and we're on, live, on full screen, and we look good. All right. So as I said, this article uh, came out August 3rd of 2022, uh, published in ASIO, um, How to Do It, a Safe Bedside Protocol for Dual Lumen Right Internal Jugular Cannulation for Venovenous Excrepore Membrane Oxygenation in COVID-19 Patients with Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So very common, we saw a lot of ARDS, in COVID patients and we used a lot of ECMO and we used a lot of uh, cannulas and different cannulation strategies on these patients. Our talk today is not really going to be looking at the multitude of cannulation strategies that can be employed for these patients. It's gonna be looking very specifically at being able to cannulate at the bedside with a single catheter dual lumen uh, uh, technique. Their abstract is as follows. In appropriately selected patients with COVID-19, acute respiratory distress syndrome, venovenous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, VV ECMO, may offer a promising bridge to lung recovery or lung transplantation if lung recovery fails. Although the cannulation technique for VV ECMO via a right internal jugular, also known as just right IJ, dual lumen catheter, DLC for reference, requires expertise and guidance by either fluoroscopy or transesophageal echocardiography, TEE. It offers theoretical circulatory support advantages by using bicable venous drainage to deliver oxygenated blood systemically with minimal recirculation as compared with the femoral vein and right IJ dual site cannulation configuration. In addition, patients are often too unstable to transport safely to an operating room or catheterization lab and fluoroscopy is not always readily available to guide our uh, right IJ DLC placement. Here we provide a comprehensive description of a safe bedside protocol for VV ECMO cannulation via right IJ dual lumen catheter under TEE guidance. We'll report our center's experience, which is uh, divided into three categories, actually, three cohorts, but it's from the dates of March 30th, 2020 to November 21st of 2021, and discuss important hemodynamic safety and infection control considerations. Now, that's a really good uh, 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 abstract. I have some, uh, uh, some concern with it, and, uh, and that has to do with the comment that uh, you can do this with just TE. It can be either uh, fluoroscopy or TEE. Uh, I 
not going to say you can't do it with just TEE, but it is a lot more, um, uh, a lot more risky to do it that way. In addition to that, uh, using a dual lumen catheter does not always reduce uh, your uh, recirculation. It can it can be just as bad, and actually, you can have in some circumstances just as low a recirculation with a dual cannulation strategy. It just depends on where these cannulas are placed. So I kind of agree with everything that they're saying here, but I have some disagreement as well. But again, this isn't a cannulation lecture, but I wanted to point that out since that was something they stated in their abstract as their opinion. I, I somewhat disagree with it, but agree with much. Although the true incidence of COVID-19 ARDS is unknown, associated mortality is nearly 45%. And of course that varies as well. Uh, I've seen mortality much higher than that in our own experience, and I've seen it reported as lower than that, uh, but that's another discussion as well. Inappropriately selected patients with COVID-19 ARDS, VV ECMO, may offer a promising bridge to lung recovery with reported survival of more than 50%. Cannulation for VV ECMO, however, is invasive and previously reported has a 15% risk for major vascular injury, bleeding, or limb ischemia, whereas neurologic complications alone during COVID-19 may be up to 25%. Again, not sure I agree with all of these numbers, um, but they are referenced, and I haven't looked at those references, but something I think that would perhaps deserve some scrutiny there. In addition, dual-site cannulation techniques for VV ECMO, that'd be femoral uh, for the drainage and then right IJ for the return, or femoral-femoral with the cannulas being placed one more uh, superior, one more inferior, may not optimally drain the oxygenated blood in a high cardiac output state, such as that often encountered in COVID-19 sepsis. So we saw that a lot, where we had uh, significant high cardiac output uh, syndrome with these patients and vasodilatation, a lot of sepsis, basically, presentation. Cannulation via right IJ DLC may provide improved delivery of oxygenated blood by using bicaval venous drainage without sacrificing extracorporeal flow rates, minimizing recirculation to 1% to 3%, and exhibiting improved survival. Avoidance of femoral venous cannulation may also lessen sedation requirements and facilitate early mobilization. Now, that is very true. Placement of RIC DLC, however, requires guidance by either fluoro or TEE to minimize the risk of cardiac perforation. I suggest fluoro and TEE, but if you're going to do one or the other, fluoro. But their 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 presentation here, their their uh, 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 report is specific to TEE. Vascular injury or malposition. Transporting to the operating room or catheterization laboratory is not always feasible in rapidly deteriorating unstable patients, true. Furthermore, fluoroscopy in the intensive care unit 
is not always available. And that is also very true. And sometimes the patients are not on a bed suitable for fluoro because you have to get the imager underneath the uh, patient and you can't. Finally, care of COVID-19 patients must consider infection control measures as well as safety for medical personnel. So you take a patient who is uh, COVID-19 and who you're now going to take through the hospital to get from the intensive care unit to the operating room, or you're gonna have to go to the uh, radiology lab or wherever, hybrid room, whatever you're deciding to do, and uh, the, and you're you know you're trying to not cross contaminate everything, uh, but clearly you can imagine anytime you're taking a patient from point A to point B outside of a closed unit, um, you have risk of in, of spreading that potential infection. Here we describe our center's experience developing a bedside protocol for right IJ, RIJ, DLC, cannulation under TEE guidance alone and show that it can be performed safely. We offer comprehensive guidance regarding COVID-19 patient selection for VV ECMO, necessary equipment and personnel to be deployed at the bedside, RIJ, DLC technique, periprocedural TEE monitoring and imaging and infection control measures. Their materials and methods, patient selection and ECMO activation. We the authors say we developed and disseminated guidelines for the consideration of patients with COVID-19 ARDS. Patients selected demonstrated poor gas exchange as defined in Appendix 1. We'll talk about that later. Any appendices or diagrams or tables we'll look at in a minute. Ultimately, patients were referred to and selected for BV ECMO by a multidisciplinary panel guided by available critical care resources. Patients under consideration for BV ECMO were preferably transported to our COVID ECMO ICU a negative pressure unit in the cardiac surgical ICU. So they segregated off a section, made it a negative pressure area, and that's where our, the COVID ECMO ICU was. They did not disperse patients all around any one particular unit. And that was a big problem, as we had that issue in a couple of our hospitals where they were, they were building negative pressure circuits into the room itself with uh, 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 HVAC ducting going out and, 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 a, uh, and a, a, a pump system to pull the air out of the rooms. But going in and out of that rooms, be it negative pressure or not, you really didn't know how much you were or weren't contaminated, changing your gowns, changing your gloves, managing emergencies. Um, it, you know, it was, uh, it was a very interesting time, but again, what, those are all conversations for another day. Activation of the VV ECMO team for cannulation involved notification of the on-call perfusionist, that would be us, cardiothoracic surgical team, cardiac anesthesiology team, could be a cardiac CRNA team for that matter, intensivist and ICU charge nurse. Materials mobilized to the bedside included an ECMO circuit, TEE machine, 
and ECMO go bag, which is in appendix two. I don't ever really show you in this uh, lecture today the appendix go bag, uh, but it's pieces and parts. Uh, it's published in the original article and uh, uh, there's a link for that in here so you could find that if that's what you'd like to do is to develop your own go bag based on uh, what they thought was best. Selection of cannula, they used either the Avalon Elite from Getting or the Crescent MC3. And cannula size were determined by the attending surgeon and guided by the patient's size, manufacturer recommendation, and desired flow rates. Cannulation configuration was determined by surgeon preference. Also known as the cannulator because it's not always a surgeon that's doing the cannulation. Sometimes it could be cardiology. So we tend to use the term uh, uh, cannulator, I think, in these circumstances. Procedural considerations and technique. Although cannulation of pronated patients, patients that have been put on their stomachs, right, has been reported in a limited series uh, by uh, Jacobleff and in a commentary uh, uh, that was published, they supinate patients for cannulation. So if your patient is prone and you're going to cannulate them in this particular center at Johns Hopkins, they put the patient back to supine in order to cannulate those patients. Um, this may lead to deterioration in gas exchange and the need uh, for deepening of sedation and paralytic. In addition, patients with pre-existing right IJ lines may require line replacement for hemodynamic support. Finally, TEE is performed in patients without contraindications to placement. So basically what the, they're saying here is that uh, in a series, limited series by William Jacobleff, whom I don't know in his commentary, um, they are cannulating patients in prone position. Uh, that, that, that would seem very challenging to me, but doable for somebody that was really good, had some good wire and, uh, and uh, catheter skills, and uh, maybe less hemodynamically destabilizing with when you prone the patient, the patient would decompensate, because we saw that several times. Team members within the ICU room include an attending CV surgeon, surgical assistant, uh, cardiothoracic surgery trainee who becomes the operator, cardiothoracic anesthesiology attending and trainee, so a resident, a couple of residents, perfusionist, ICU nurse, and respiratory therapist. An assistant outside of the room further promotes safety and efficiency, so they're going to be going and getting things. Surgical field preparation is illustrated in figure two and heparin between three and 5,000 uh, international units is administered intravenously. Now, going through all the rest of this, how they put the cannula in, I'm just gonna skip, but it's highlighted if you wanna screenshot this and read it or get the article and uh, read it yourself, you can do that. Transesophageal echocardiography is used for monitoring cardiac injury wire displacement, bowing or bending of the wire, and successful deployment of the cannula into the hepatic IBC. 
Each lumen of the dual lumen cannula is de-aired and flushed with saline by bulb syringe and connected to the corresponding pre-prime perfusion circuit tubing via tubing connectors in an airtight fashion. Tubing clamps are removed. VV ECMO flow is initiated while monitoring for circuit air entrainment and con confirmation of outflow blood color change and the cannula position is assessed by TEE. Optimal placement should result in an outflow color jet directed towards the tricuspid valve. The right IJ dual lumen cath, uh, cannula is initially oriented such that the outflow lumen is anterior, but may require subtle manipulation if clinical and TE monitoring suggests suboptimal placement. So as you put this in, of course, you have an inflow and an outflow, uh, and you want those generally to be uh, pointed straight up and down, and that should give your outflow a more anterior uh, uh, configuration. But we'll have to explore cannulas at a later time so that we can really look at that. But there are markers and ways of identifying depending on where the outflow is that has a certain shape and you can rotate that more anteriorly or more laterally depending on what you're trying to accomplish where the anatomy of the heart is suggesting the tricuspid valve is and what you see with your TEE flow jet. But the only way that's going to work is if you're using a bicable view and the patient's going to have to be tolerating the TEE and you're going to have to have a uh, echocardiographic uh, 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 person who can manipulate the probe and get the view that you're really looking for. Sometimes difficult to do, but we'll talk about that in these images. Here you see the um, the uh, uh, folks in the room and a, cat a heading in-room choreography of bedside. So this is not actually being done on a patient at that time. They are choreographing this. Uh, which includes a CV surgeon, CV surgeon assistant, anesthesiologist or anesthesia person, uh, uh, whether it be that or a CRNA, intensive care unit nurse, and perfusionist. All team members are wearing either approved PPE uh, or sterile gown. Okay, so that's what we have there. And here we see the surgical instruments uh, that came from their go bag that I talked about a little bit earlier. Okay. Now this is a very uh, nice image. This is a this is a bicable view, and I don't think I need that. I think I need my finger on this. Yeah, this is a bicable view, and you see here is where your SVC is and this would be coming this way. Your IVC would be over here. Here's your tricuspid valve down here, and they're showing you this high-velocity jet that is coming out of the Avalon or Crescent cannula, depending on your dual-lumen catheter um, for, uh, for ECMO supported, uh, inserted through the right IJ. And that's what this high-flow colored jet that you see here going towards the tricuspid valve is telling you that uh, this is 
positioned in a uh, in a very good spot to maximize effectiveness and reduce recirculation. Here is just for reference to that uh, image I just showed you. Here is the esophagus and the TEE probe. And you see here the right atrium. And what you're looking at here is the probe pointing towards this bicable view that I was talking about. And this is what it looks like. So you have your left atrium up here. You have your right atrium here. You have your right atrial appendage here. You can see the eustachian valve at the entrance of the inferior vena cava. Um, and then you see the crista terminalis here, uh, which you don't always see, but sometimes you do see that uh, on the uh, echo. But this is a classic bicable ECMO view. And I'm gonna go back and show you again. Here's your SVC, here's your tricuspid valve. This would be your right atrial appendage. This would be your IVC here. This would be your left atrium up here. Initial pump settings are adjusted to a speed of 3,000 to 4,000 RPMs, corresponding with a four to seven liter per minute blood flow. Circuit FiO2 of 100%, this always makes sense, and sweep between three and six. So anytime I'm gonna initiate ECMO on someone, uh, uh, VA, it's always 100% on your FiO2. Never ever gonna be anything different. On VV, you always initiate at 100%. Um, you wanna know what the, what the most you could give that patient, how much that's going to benefit. And the higher, the, the lower you make your circuit FiO2, the lower the patient's post uh, or, or left-sided uh, uh, PO2 is going to be, and the higher you're going to have to maintain your vent in order to keep that PO2 at where you want it to be. So if you go on ECMO with VV, unless you're in the process of weaning, um, it should be at 100%. You give them all they got coming to them. And that oxygen is actually really good to help reduce pulmonary hypertension, especially going into the right side like that through the lungs, high uh, venous uh, uh, saturation going into the lungs through the pulmonary arteries is uh, beneficial to the, uh, to the lung tissue. Pump calibration and initial adjustments are based on starting hemoglobin and initial arterial blood gas, makes sense. It may be necessary to proactively resuscitate patients with crystalloid or blood products caused by precannulation hypovolemia. That you see a lot uh, patients, especially when they've been struggling, they tend to really dry them out. Um, they're also very excitable and they're very vasoconstricted. And then you get them on ECMO and all of a sudden you get this vasodilatation and what has already been a dry patient that was vasoconstricted. So the tank size was reduced now is relaxed and you drop all of that uh, vasoconstriction and you vasodilate on a tank that's already empty and you can have a very profound hypotension and 
flow disruptions because it's constantly occluding. The tank is just not full enough, so you need to uh, volume resuscitate those patients, but you don't want to, you should be prepared for it, but you don't only want to use crystalloid because then you start the third space. You don't only want to use crystalloid and albumin. You want to look at the hemoglobin and consider the oxygen carrying capacity and recognize this patient has already been in an oxygen deficit for a usually a protracted period of time and now we're going to be on ECMO but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going because we're going to rest the lungs we might have a, 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 a saturation of 90 91 92 percent but maybe even 88 percent what do we want the DO2 to be and hemoglobin is going to be the primary driver to that so you do not want to leave your patient anemic along with everything else so you want to keep your COP you want to make sure your hemoglobin is good, you make sure your DO2 is good, and you can tolerate a much lower arterial saturation if you have a higher hemoglobin with good DO2, then you can do that if you are anemic. Infection control measures to protect providers from COVID-19 exposure, and that's what, when I was reading this, it, it's not the infection control measures for the patient, it's infection control measures for us, uh, to protect providers from COVID-19 exposure, we recommend an ECMO team consisting of the minimum number of necessary providers. Well, I got to tell you, how many people they had in that room was a pretty high number. So I wouldn't say that they, that they were following that based on their protocol. Um, they probably had three people more at least than they really needed. All providers were donned an N95 mask with face shields or powered air purifying respira uh, respirator contact isolation gown and two sets of sterile gloves surgical providers were donned in sterile surgical gowns the te machine was donned in a clear cover and later uh, doffed into a container sealed by two hazard bags i guess that yeah i'm not sure what do i don't know what doffed means all reusable equipment was cl cleansed with an enzymatic cleaner before exiting the isolation area after cannulation, we preferred to perform immediate tracheostomy to minimize infection risk by minimizing the number of procedures and removing the existing endotracheal tube. Now, that probably made sense. And uh, when they talk about reducing infection risk, they're not necessarily talking about the reducing the infection risk on the patient. They're talking about not having to bring a whole other team in there to do a trach. We're already all here, so let's just go ahead and get this done now. Our experience tells us we're going to be intubated for quite some time and getting this patient trached is going to be much better for the patient and we may as well do it now. They cannulated 47 patients from March 30th of 2020 to November 21st of 2021 for ECMO. They noted, and this is really good now, three distinct cohorts corresponding to the following dates. Cohort one, March 30 of 2020 to August 21 of 2020. Cohort two, October 27, 2020 to May 10th of 2021. And cohort three, August 9th of 2021 to November 21st of 2021, which is the suspected Delta variant. Cannulated patients demonstrated a mean age of 46.4 years, 
28% were female, 70% were African-American or uh, Latinx ethnicity, uh, mean precannulation PF ratio and number of ventilatory days were 64 and 4.3 respectively. Uh, PF ratio of 64 is really low. Uh, and I think it's really good that they were 4.3 days, probably should have been less than that. I think we learned that uh, anything over 48 hours, maybe uh, maybe uh, 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 72 hours, three days, was, uh, was becoming too long. Mean sequential organ failure assessment or SOFA score at the time of cannulation was eight. A total of 26 patients were cannulated for VV ECMO via right IJ DLC catheterization. All cannulations occurred at the bedside. Patient cannulation configurations to survival are shown in table one. And let's take a look at table one at this point. So, um, and I probably should have can I borrow a, uh, can I borrow a, uh, 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 oh no, I have it up here. I put it up there. Never mind. Uh, I don't need a pen. So cohort one is here. Okay. And I went ahead and put the survival, the number of patients they had and the number surviving was, uh, 18 patients with 11 surviving. And this was 61% survival. That's really good. And that is what we sort of expect with, uh, patients that have ARDS uh, that uh, go on to require ECMO through their course of therapy. A very classic number, 60% survival is what is generally predicted. Uh, and this was cohort one, March 30 to August 21st of 2020. So sort of that initial wave, that original strain of the uh, virus. The dual site uh, was four with 50% of them surviving. Um, and the right IJ uh, was 12 patients with eight of them surviving. Now cohort two was um, October 27 to May 10th, October 27th of 2020 to May 10th of 2021. Um, we see a drop of to 40% survival and then we look and see that dual site cannulation was 11 uh, total with three of those patients surviving and right IJ was uh, eight with four of them surviving. So 50% survivors here, far fewer survivors here, total number of survivors, 20%, 21% less than cohort one. In the article, and you'll see that as it comes up, I, I remember it's gonna happen, so, and I don't wanna forget to say this. There's a suggestion that the cannulation technique may have played a role in that, I, I, and, and I understand where they're, what their thought processes are. I, I simply wanna tell you before we even get to it, and I'll remind you at the time when we do get to it, I disagree with that. Cohort three, August 9th to, of 2021 to November 21st of 2021 had a 22% uh, survival. So far, far less. And remember, this is where they believe the Delta variant hit. So the Delta variant was very deadly. Um, several things happened during that time. One, the severity of the disease was clearly worse. 
um, the number of patients that we had, we had become so overwhelmed that resources were diminishing at the same time, something that was far more aggressive was going up. So it was a, just a perfect storm. Bed space availability, ECMO machine availability, ECMO disposable cannulas uh, availability, and room at the uh, quaternary care facilities where transplants could be done uh, really uh, uh, were, were not available. And so uh, a lot of these patients died from multi-organ system failure. Nevertheless, in cohort three, you had a total of all configurations, nine total with two surviving. Uh, dual site was four and one, and uh, right IJ site was five and uh, five and two. Or five and one, I'm sorry. So two survivors out of nine split fairly evenly between uh, dual site and uh, right IJ. Um, total for the entire COVID period was, I'm sorry, 44% uh, survival, 47 patients being put on ECMO, 21% of them surviving. So overall, 44%, 40% is usually what you would quote for survival with VA ECMO, 60% VV ECMO. That's kind of the standard uh, uh, general rule of survival with ECMO. Um, can be higher, can be lower, depending on variables, but in general, overall numbers, that's where it plays out. Um, so this is really pretty low for a VV ECMO, but it is really skewed by two things. The original strain was not nearly as deadly. Delta was really deadly. And uh, so this number here is a lot lower than you would expect for uh, VV ECMO uh, for ARDS. Survival to hospital discharge was 45% for all configurations, 50% when you exclude the Delta cohort and 52% for patients supported by right IJ DLC alone, 60% when excluding the Delta cohort. The mean duration of VV ECMO was 51.2 days for survivors. Periprocedural complications were primarily minor and did not include, and did include, I'm sorry, one major complication of carotid artery injury. No providers contracted COVID-19 from exposure uh, to our cohort patients. Um, and so, uh, so they did have one carotid artery uh, uh, puncture, inadvertent puncture or injury during insertion, but that, that's, uh, uh, that happens. That can happen whether you're doing dual technique or you're doing signal technique, unless you're doing fem-fem, uh, which you can uh, then, but you can still hit a femoral artery. In all cases, and this is their discussion now, in all cases, ECMO cannulation was considered salvage therapy. That really struck me, like, what? I find that odd, but that's their statement. I'm reading it, quoting it. After the failure of rescue therapies, including inverse ratio ventilation, prone positioning, neuromuscular blockade, and inhaled nitric oxide administration in nearly all patients pre-cannulation, the data reported here represent three distinct cohorts of our COVID experience with the last cohort representing the Delta variant surge and consequently a dismal survival rate. Totally agree with that. 
we observed an overall declining survival trend throughout the progression of pandemic surges, which is most likely because of the severity of ARDS and consequent irreversible lung injury with associated with latter variants. However, after subgroup analysis within each surge cohort, there is a tendency toward improved survival with the right IJ DLC configuration, 52% versus dual site configuration, 32%, which may be coincidental. I frankly think it is coincidental. Um, uh, I prefer the right IJ, I prefer the single lumen. I think it's, uh, there's other reasons why I think it's better, but I don't think, uh, I don't think you can say, because you can place dual catheters really well and have very, very low recirculation, and people do it all of the time in some really big centers that are really good at it. Um, I do think that, that the dual lumen catheter offers some benefit, but I do think that the improved survival is coincidental. A translation of decreased site infection risk or a reflection of an anticipated learning curve for pericannulation and ICU ECMO support, but may also demonstrate a benefit of DLC configurations as previously reported. Um, and again, that I, I'm going to stay open-minded and okay, maybe there is, you know, but I think we really have to look at that because there's a lot of places that simply do not use the dual lumen technology um, or technique and have excellent outcomes uh, better than ours. And we use the double lumen uh, technique. I think a lot of this has to do with patient selection, what you're doing with the patient uh, afterwards, what are the goals of the patient, are they going to transplant, how much do you need to mobilize the patient, um, there's other factors that are involved in the decision. A dual lumen uh, single catheter technique absolutely improves your ability to mobilize that patient, to walk that patient, to prepare that patient for uh, transplant. It can still be done with double cannulation, double site cannulation technique, and it is done uh, with that configuration, but it's harder to do. And uh, you, there's other considerations you have to take into, uh, into account. Okay. Uh, we observed one major complication. We talked about that of carotid artery puncture. This was attributed to multiple factors, including TEE malfunction at the time of attempted IJ cannulation, which could not be resolved immediately because of the patient's near arrest hemodynamic profile and precluded our ability to confirm wire placement in the right atrium before uh, dilatation or dilation. How later we emphasize the need to cannulate earlier in the patient's course, which we hope will prevent rushed cannulations and also allow adequate time to confirm functional TEE. Although, and I told you know, that, that all makes a lot of sense. It's a lot easier to do it in a controlled environment than it is to do in the middle of uh, the, patient, the patient coding, especially a young patient. Um, earlier intervention is always better. And the argument is always going to be, you cannulated when you really didn't need to, that's why your outcomes look so good. And you waited too long to cannulate and that's why your outcomes look so bad. No one really knows where the, you know, if we don't cannulate this patient, are they going to die if we do not, 
or will they make it through if we do not will they you know is is an is something that there's no way to absolutely 100 percent know um but i think all of us in our experiences look at a patient and say this patient is going the wrong direction and they would probably be to their benefit a better benefit than the risk of putting them on onto uh, the risks associated with ECMO, which is not benign by any stretch. So you don't want to put patients who don't need ECMO on ECMO. It's not good for you. Uh, but that all becomes experience. And uh, the more of these you do, the more experienced you are at making those decisions of yes, we should, no, we shouldn't. And one of the reasons why I am somewhat concerned about so many places just wanting to jump into doing ECMO when they may not have the experience or the patience now in order to be able to gain uh, the experience that they're going to need when they do get a patient. They're very high resource utilization and they can be very tricky in, uh, in managing these patients. So I don't think we should just be doing ECMO uh, across the board in any hospital uh, unless you have enough volume to support the expertise that it takes and have the expertise on site to manage these patients. Uh, getting the patient transferred to an ECMO center is going to make the best, it's going to be the best option for the patient. Now, getting them initiated, having a system in place where we have the patient, let's get them on ECMO and let's get them out of here uh, via life flight or ground ambulance or whatever, because once you have them on ECMO, you can kind of all settle down quite a bit um, and get them to a center. Maybe we need to keep them a day or two. I'm 100% supportive of that. But keeping them long-term and managing their care uh, is, uh, is very, very, very challenging if you have not done it uh, before and enough times to be good at it. Although further study is needed to determine whether any cannulation strategy is superior, in our experience, critically ill patients with COVID-19 ARDS can be safely and successfully cannulated at the bedside via right IJ dual lumen VV ECMO technique under TEE guidance alone. It doesn't say alone, but alone is what they're saying without significant risk of harm to the patient or medical staff or sacrifice in medical education. Doing it with just TEE is a lot trickier. Yes, they did it safely, and I understand their reasoning, uh, but there is, uh, we're gonna talk about it in the second half of this, a different approach. Uh, they go on to acknowledge the folks that helped them with this, which I thought was very nice of them in their article. Uh, but one of the things I did want to go over is their appendices, patient selection for VV ECMO, patients selected must demonstrate respiratory failure with worsening gas exchange despite conventional interventions that include lung protective ventilation with the use of positive uh, with PEEP as per ARDSnet protocol, prone positioning, neuromuscular blockade, and if available, inhaled nitric oxide. In select cases, a trial of airway pressure release ventilation may be appropriate. Despite these measures, if gas exchange continues to worsen as defined by a PF ratio less than 80 for six hours or a PF ratio of less than 50 for, four, for three hours, a pH of less than 7.25 with a PCO2 greater than 60 with plateau pressures greater than 30. Those patients 
are candidates for ECMO. The exclusions I found very interesting. Age 60 years, BMI greater than 45. I can't tell you how many patients with a BMI greater than 45 we did. Poor neurologic function uh, or unknown mental status pr before presentation. Mechanical ventilation at seven days or greater. I agree with that 100%. Bleeding diatheses, immunocompromised state, malignancy with expected survival less than five years, uh, multi-organ system failure, unwitnessed cardiac arrest, chronic end-organ disease, chronic renal stage three or worse. Uh, so if you're a renal failure patient, should not be getting this. Moderate, severe, chronic, obstructive pulmonary disease, ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with a history of CHF, severe peripheral vascular disease or liver cirrhosis, exclusion uh, uh, extensions for patients that are less than 45 years old, BMI of greater than 50, or mechanical ventilation greater than 14 days. So that is that article. I did a lot of talking uh, with it and about it and through it, um, but I wanna show you, which I think, you know, I understand where they're coming from to be able to do TEE, but TEE requires um, somebody who really understands how to manipulate the TEE and doing single cannula, right IJ cannulation and getting that wire to go down into the hepatic inferior vena cava without making any loop or having any bend in it requires very, very, very skillful imaging technique um, and carries with it substantial risk. And actually in their uh, uh, configuration, though I understand what they were trying to accomplish and I compliment them for that tremendously, they had a lot of people in that room um, so let's talk about uh, some alternative to that. Um, can I take a, uh, can you give me a exactly one minute break? Yes. Can I have an exact, if y'all can, I just need a one minute break real quick. Okay, so during my review of that article, I, uh, I thought to myself, uh, let's look and see what other people are doing here because I had my own experience, which was we were taking, we did bedside 
uh, but we would bring a fluoro in and sometimes the fluoro didn't work on the fluoro bed, but we would angle it and try to at least be able to see. A couple of the surgeons that we work with are just really incredibly gifted and could get enough of an image to see the wire going through uh, on the uh, very lateral edge. So I found that to be very interesting, but we tried to use fluoro beds in the ICU so that you could put the fluoro in there and it made uh, insertion so much easier. Uh, but of course, you know, it does require a lot of people, you know, all of these things require a lot of people. And so um, I looked up this article here, which was just recently published, which I thought was great. Um, and it's a dual lumen extracorporeal membrane oxygenation cannulation technique using a mobile x-ray device. And it's uh, from uh, Schweiger and uh, Ponholzer and colleagues out of Vienna, Austria. Um, great place, I'd love to go there and visit to see what they're doing over there. Um, I, I, I think Austria is a beautiful country. Uh, and this was published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery uh, very recently, this year, uh, uh, I'm not sure of the uh, month, but very recently. And their abstract is as follows, purpose, dual lumen extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO uh, cannulation is considered technically challenging and harbors the risk of potential life-threatening complications during cannulation. And most specifically what can happen is the wire can loop and go make a circling still end up down in the inferior vena cava it can also go down into the tricuspid valve area come kind of back up make a curve backwards and still go down that uh, 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 intra the uh, uh, hepatic IVC so there's various things you can do and your biggest risk for the insertion of these dual lumen catheters in the right IJ is basically tearing the either tearing the atrium at the uh, IVC junction or going down into the ventricle and perforating the, the uh, ventricle. So it's uh, it's something that has happened and can happen. So that's your biggest risk factor with the insertion of these devices. Uh, Dulumen. Dual lumen cannula insertion is performed under either ultrasound or fluoroscopy guidance. Both techniques have significant advantages, such as examiner dependence of the necess uh, necessity for transportation of the patient from the intensive care unit to the operating room. Uh, their description, digital mobile x-ray devices provide a novel, examiner-independent imaging modality for bedside dual lumen ECMO cannulation. Remember what I said earlier, doing TEE requires a lot of skill. You really have to know what you're looking at and how to rotate it uh, in order to be able to get the images that you need. Their evaluation from November of 2019 to November of 2021, 23 dual lumen cannulations were performed in 20 patients at the Department of Thoracic Surgery Medical University of Vienna. 
12 of 23, or 52.2%, were inserted in the intensive care unit using a mobile x-ray device. The remaining patients were cannulated in the operating room with conventional fluoroscopy guidance. In none of the procedures did cardiovascular injuries occur. Insertion site bleeding was the most common ECMO-related complication. Their conclusions of their abstract, dual lumen cannulation, cannulation using sequential x-rays can be performed safely, especially for infectious patients or patients who require an awake ECMO. This technique overcomes disadvantages of established imaging modalities vis-a-vis fluoroscopy. The technology. Dual lumen cannulas are today part of the standard armamentarium at most major extracorporeal membrane oxygenation centers. That is especially true for lung transplantation centers as the single site dual lumen cannulation facilitates mobilization and an awake or ambulatory ECMO bridge to transplant setting. However, the cannulation procedure itself is considered more challenging compared with standard single lumen cannulas, which would be dual site. Rare but severe complications such as cardiac perforation and pericardial tamponade have been reported in the literature as well as to the ELSO database and the FDA. Two techniques have been described to guide the introduction of a dual lumen cannula. Fluoroscopy provides an excellent overview, but its availability is limited to the operating room or angiography suite, which is not necessarily true. You can do it in the ICU. You have to have a bed that allows for it to go under. Those beds exist. Uh, For many intensive care units, they're the fluoro beds, and uh, that should be readily available. Transthoracic or transesophageal uh, 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 echo sonography can be performed at the patient's bedside, but is highly examiner-dependent. Very true. Both techniques, with their inherent advantages and disadvantages, appear to be feasible and safe in experienced hands, and that's going to be table one, which we'll look at here shortly. And I'll tell you how we do it. We use both. We use we use uh, uh, fluoro and TEE for these insertions. So we use both, and that's you can do it with one or the other. In my opinion, fluoro is way better than TEE. Having both is best. However, the ubiquitous availability of digital bedside x-ray devices at our institution fostered the development of a novel bedside cannulation technique that overcomes most disadvantages of the originally described techniques. Herein, we describe the technique of bedside dual lumen ECMO cannulation guided by sequential x-rays in the intensive care unit and the first clinical experience with this procedure. And uh, in their technique, cannulation using either the crescent cannula uh, from, actually all of the cannulations. Cannulation was done using the crescent cannula from MC3 and Medtronic as a distributor 
and a digital mobile x-ray device called Mobile D-A-R-T Evolution. I uh, can't get into all that. Uh, was carried out using basic Selinger technique uh, to gain access to the right IJ. Ideally, the team consisted of two surgeons, an ICU physician, a scrub nurse, a perfusionist, and a radiology technologist. General measures for reducing radiation exposure were applied. The team was equipped with radiation protective aprons. After washing and draping the neck, uh, now I'm not going to go ahead and get into this. This is basically how they, they their, their technique, much like the other one. I think we can skip all of the details of how they insert the cannula. The dual lumen catheter was then inserted. During introduction of the cannula, special care was taken not to retrieve the guide wire or to push the guide wire together with the cannula. So you want to anchor it, right? We all know that. The correct position and depth were then confirmed by assessing the orientation of the radiopaque markers in relation to anatomic landmarks, figure two. I'll show you these figures and drawings and stuff. After removal of the guide wire and, and introducer, the cannula was connected to the ECMO circuit and secured with three sutures and a head of four or five and a head bandage. Yeah, okay. <laughs> A final chest x-ray film was obtained to confirm the final position of the cannula. In most cases, a total of four or five sequential x-ray films were sufficient for the whole cannulation procedure. Clinical experience. Between November 2019 and November 2021, a total of 23 dual lumen cannulation procedures were performed in 20 patients. In 12 procedures, the novel bedside technique using mobile x-ray device was applied. In the majority of cases, the indication for ECMO was a bridge to transplantation, which was 65% of the time. That was followed by acute respiratory distress syndrome, which was 21% or almost 22% of those patients. Two patients had COVID-19 acute respiratory distress syndrome. All of the cannulation procedures using the mobile x-ray device were performed bedside in the ICU, whereas all fluoroscopy-guided procedures required transportation of the patient to the operating room. Of note, 47.8% of ECMO runs were in a non-intubated setting. The median time on ECMO support was eight days, a range of zero to 44. I'll tell you another thing, and that is doing awake ECMOs is horrifying, and I am still traumatized by us doing it, though it probably was the best thing to do for the patients that we did that to. Uh, but I didn't like it one bit. Minor complications occurred in 21.5% of the ECMO runs with similar incidents in both cannulation groups. Um, one major ECMO complication was a hepatic vein thrombosis despite correct cannula position. Cardiovascular injury or cardiac tamponade did not occur in any of the 23 cannulation procedures. Three patients died of multi-organ failure during ECMO support. No cannulation-related deaths occurred. So here's that table one I was talking about that they uh, had. So possible advantages and disadvantages of various imaging techniques. So this is the variable, anatomic overview, avoidance of radiation, cannulation in awake patient, cannulation intensive care unit, continuous visual feedback, independent of examiner skills, and visualization of cannula outflow. If you're doing TTE, transthoracic echo, um, you have 
no uh, anatomic overview. There's uh, absolute avoidance of radiation. You can do this on an awake patient. It can be done in the intensive care unit. You get continuous visual feedback. It is definitely not independent of examiner skills and you can visualize the cannula outflow, though with difficulty. I think this is a stretch. With TEE, anatomic overview, uh, you cannot have avoidance of radiation, obviously. Doing it on an awake patient, you cannot because you need to put this big probe down their esophagus and awake people don't like that. Cannulation in intensive care unit, yes, can be done. Continuous feedback, yes. Independent of examiner skills, that would be the TEE operator. No, you have to have somebody that's good at doing that. And you can definitely visualize uh, the cannula outflow so long as you are using a bicable view. It is really the only one of the, I, you could do it with other views, but I think that's the one that makes it the most obvious and uh, 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 you can uh, make your decisions from there. But if you put it in and orientate it the right way and it's in the right depth, um, it's likely going to be uh, good. I don't know that, uh, I don't really depend on TEE to visualize the outflow. Um, we have other ways of doing it, which we are gonna actually talk about tomorrow, which is how do you measure recirculation in your ECMO circuit? And uh, that sort of uh, uh, negates the need for this. Uh, fluoroscopy, uh, you have absolute anatomic overview. Uh, you uh, obviously have a radiation risk. Uh, cannulation in awake patient can be done. Cannulation in intensive care unit, it says cannot be done. I disagree with that. If you have a bed that is suitable for doing, uh, doing uh, fluoro in the ICU, that's what you need to buy, fluoro beds. Continuous visual feedback, yes, because it's live. Independent of examiner skills. Um, yes, because it's put in place and it's an overview and you turn it on and you see and uh, so there's really not much skill except for aiming it to the general area that you are wanting to view or visualize. Uh, and visualization of cannula outflow, they say yes and no. You can look at what the orientation of the outflow is. No, you can't visual, I guess you could put some dye in there, but no, I don't think you can really look at the visualization of the cannula outflow except by using the markers and looking at its orientation under fluoro. The mobile x-ray device that we're talking about, an anatomic overview, yes. Avoidance of radiation, no. Cannulation in an awake patient, yes. Cannulation in the intensive care unit, yes. Continuous visual feedback, no, because you take an image, look at it, and then you start making some movements, and then you have to take another image. So it's not continuous visual feedback. You're taking snapshots versus a live image. Independent of examiner skills, absolutely. Visualization of cannula outflow, well, a lot for the same reason that you see here, yes and no. You can, it's a 2D image. You can look and see which way it's oriented and where it's supposed to be and think to yourself, if I have it turned this way, that outflow is there and where is the valve? So you have to be able to think in three dimension even though you're looking at a two dimensional image. Here you see the setup, you have a single operator in the room. 
This is the cannulator. This is the portable x-ray device that has been set up. He has some kind of a foot pedal to activate it. And then this screen here gives him the image. So he would be able to see the wire, see that there were no um, uh, loops in that, that it wasn't diving into the RV and then back out. Uh, so this is going to give you a sense of safety that that wire is a straight shot from the right R IJ all the way down into the IBC. Uh, they say here that it's usually turned, this is just a stage photograph, towards the operator so that they can see the screen. Uh, obviously, they did this for, uh, for uh, demonstration purposes. And um, then they can put the cannula in. And literally, as long as they have everything there already, they don't need anyone else in there to help them. Uh, I think, you know, it would make more sense to have somebody there to help them because loading wires and holding the wires still and all of that kind of thing. Uh, one person doing it, yes, it can be done. I think it's suboptimal. At least have two. Somebody to help the guy. Here you see the crescent, uh, which is a great catheter, but here's an x-ray, an A of the wire coming down from the right IJ. You see it coming down and transitioning uh, infradiaphragmatic. Uh, it's way down here in the uh, belly. And uh, then in this diagram here, you see there's no loops. It's a nice straight line. Then here you see the cannula being inserted over that wire. The tip of the cannula is here, and you can see that it is also infradiaphragmatic, which is what you want it to do. And this area here is being blown up. And here is the blow up of that, and you see your marker dots here, and you see this divot that's cut out here that's kind of over this bone, and this is going to be your outflow. And then here you see it positioned the way they want it to be and see, and they are uh, very happy with that. Here are the clinical characteristics of their patients. They had a total of uh, their N is 23, their mean age was 48, 13 male, 10 female, 15 were bridged to transplant, 15, uh, five were ARDS, uh, and two were airway surgery for some reason. Uh, one was an acute rejection after lung transplant. Uh, 12 of them were inserted in the ICU, 11 were inserted in the operating room, uh, 12 were intubated, 11 of them were awake, non-intubated patients. They used either a 28 or a 30 uh, crescent, uh, 12 and 11 times respectively. Insertion site was right IJ 20 times, left IJ uh, was three times. Study period the first year was seven. The second year was 16 patients. Direct, uh, duration of ECMO support was eight days average with zero to 44 days being the uh, range. Under fluoro, they did 11 patients. Under mobile x-ray, they did 12. We talked about that already. And here are those patient demographics and I'll let you just take a look at that. Major complications, uh, they had one in total. It was during a fluoro case. Uh, and that was the, I believe that was the IVC thrombosis that had occurred uh, despite 
the cannula position being in good spot, but we saw a lot of that coagulation, um, hypercoagulable states. Uh, it's hard to say why that happened. Um, minor ECMO complications uh, were uh, uh, about the same, maybe a little higher, insertion site bleeding, repositioning, cannula, ECMO, oxygenator, clotting. None of these have anything to do with whether you inserted it with fluoro or you inserted it with mobile ECMO. Death during ECMO support was three, uh, zero in the fluoroscopy, three in the mobile X-ray, suspecting because these patients couldn't be transported and needed to be done at the bedside and were just sicker. And those, all three of those patients died from multi-organ failure. So if they did a total of 23 patients and they only had three die, um, that's pretty impressive. That's a very, very, very high survival percentage compared to uh, what we just saw in the previous study from Johns Hopkins on our own experience, which I have reported on here uh, on this program. In their comment, in our opinion, the herein described technique using a mobile x-ray device has several advantages and allows a safe bedside insertion of a dual lumen cannula in the ICU. A, a, a repeatedly reported potentially fatal error is an intracardiac loop of the guide wire despite verification of the guide wire in the inferior vena cava by sonography, by doing TEE. I, I just mentioned that, and they're mentioning it as well. That is the biggest problem. There is a very high likelihood that introduce, introduction of the cannula leads to a cardiac injury in this situation. We believe so far only fluoroscopy is capable of fully excluding this error. Using fluoroscopy on x-ray films, the correct placement of the guide wire and the cannula in, the entire con in their entire continuity can be objectified, documented, and stored by the surgical team. In contrast to ultrasound guided techniques that supersedes any dependency on the skills of the examiner and thereby removes a major potential pitfall in dual lumen cannulation. I agree with that 100%. In comparison with fluoroscopy, which is usually not available in the ICU, the widespread use of digital mobile x-ray devices avoids transportation of these highly critically ill and sometimes infectious patients from the ICU to the operating room. Therefore, this novel technique provided to be especially valuable for patients with COVID-19 ARDS. In our cohort of 65.2, in our cohort, 65.2% of our patients were in a bridge to transplant setting. Moreover, the mass, vast majority of these patients were in an awake, non-intubated state. In these non-intubated patients, TEE guidance is not possible. Moreover, transportation to the operating room for fluoroscopy-guided cannulation can be avoided. An advantage of ultrasound-guided insertions is still the visualization of the lateral outflow jet. However, using the latest generation of dual-lumen cannulas with radio-opaque markers, that's going to be the crescent, the visualization of these markers by fluoroscopy or chest x-ray film aids the correct positioning of the lateral jet. Supporting this, only one of the dual lumen cannula in the overall cohort required repositioning. And that might be not because it was positioned poorly the first time, it could get moved for a lot of reasons. 
a rather theoretical limitation of both fluoroscopy and mobile x-ray devices compared with sonography techniques is the exposure to radiation. Considering the number of radiologic examinations a patient with lung failure in the ICU receives, the exposure during cannulation is almost negligible. Lastly, the mobile x-ray technique does not provide continuous visual feedback. Retrieving the guide wire during introduction of the cannula or pushing the guide wire together with the cannula might result in dislocation or kinking. Additional x-ray films or simultaneous ultrasonography might be considered. However, in our experience, the visual visualization and confirmation of the key steps during cannulation makes any visual feedback between these steps obsolete. In summary, we believe that the advantages and the safety provided by the mobile x-ray technique are superior to the other described techniques. Consequently, at our department, at our department, the mobile x-ray technique has evolved to be the primary strategy for dual lumen cannulation. Okay, that is my final slide. I think I might be a few minutes early. I might have talked a little too fast. It should have taken exactly 90 minutes. Um, but tomorrow we are actually going to be exploring recirculation in your ECMO circuit. And actually, once placed, once you get the cannula inserted, and I agree with the group out of Vienna that having x-ray uh, 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 sequential x-rays or fluoro for inserting this dulumen catheter is so much safer. But once you have it positioned and you're ready to go, uh, markers help. Um, looking at the jet with TEE helps, but nothing helps more than being to objectively evaluate what the recirculation is with a test that tells you what it is, what should be a standard of care. And we're gonna be exploring that tomorrow. Of course, you know I'm talking about the transonic ELSA meter, and uh, we're gonna be doing a deep dive into recirculation. Why does recirculation happen? What are the, uh, the, 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 the uh, morbidities associated with recirculation, how does it really make your, your, your ECMO treatment, your ECMO therapy ineffective? Um, and how do you fix it? And how do you know you fixed it? How can you infer what the recirculation is? Can you measure recirculation percentages by inference? Or again, do you need something that you can actually measure it by? Um, and so I'm a very strong supporter of the transonic ELSA meter for any ECMO program. You should always have at least one. Uh, but uh, that's, a, I, and for full disclosure, I received no financial benefit for saying that at all. I'm not part of any of their committees. I don't do anything for them that I get compensated for. I just really do believe in the product and think that it is an extremely useful tool that everyone should have for a variety of reasons. We're gonna discuss that tomorrow. In the meantime, have yourselves a great day and I will look forward to seeing you tomorrow at uh, I believe 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. tomorrow, Central Time, United States of America. Thank you.